As we get ready for this morning's message, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we cry out to you, and Lord, we pray that we would find our rest in you. Father, some of us come in exhausted this week, and we just need your spirit, Lord. We need your encouragement. We need the strength of your word, and I pray, Father, that we would be that for one another, that you've given us gifts to be used for your kingdom and for the glory of God, and so we want to be that. So maybe we minister to one another that are feeling broken or beat down today, and we would care for one another and encourage the body, Father. That's what you do. Father, I pray that we would listen to your word and not just hear it, but it would impact us so that we could go out and live it out for you. You are incredibly good. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. Uh, We started a series last week in the book of Judges, so we're going to be in Judges chapters 2 and 3 today. Um, As we get going today, I was just wondering, how many of you are lefties? We got any lefties out there? Raise your left hand if you're a lefty. Okay, celebrate that hand. Okay, we got some of you out there. All right, I learned this week, you know, Ashton's a lefty, and I also, um, I grew up, my dad was a lefty, and so, uh, you know, there's some advantages, but there's not very many, okay? <laughs> there's a, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of disadvantages to being a lefty, and uh, I don't know if you recognize this, most of us righties never even think about these things, right? But it feels like to those lefties, we live in a right-handed world, Right? There's just advantages, things that we have. Uh, think about learning to write. Have you ever seen a teacher that, you know, uh, was left-handed on a dry erase board? It's like they're dragging their arm across and it just keeps erasing. And you're like, wait, you know, that's got to be difficult. I've been told that scissors are incredibly awkward, okay? R- mostly they're meant for right-handed people. You put them in a the left hand, it just doesn't feel right, right? And then, uh, you know, a lot of things that right-handed people take for granted. I've been told that playing cards, it just kind of fans out better for a right handed person, the numbers are kind of hidden for the left-handed person. And so it's frustrating to them, you know? And another one is clothing, zippers, you know, it seems like your coats, it's, they have these little flaps and pants have these flaps and it's like the left-handed person have to, you know, dig around and, you know, find that zipper. It's kind of frustrating. They get bitter about these things. Us righties don't even know about them, right? And so there's a couple advantages. Um, The main advantage I looked up is that somehow statistically, it says you're more likely to be a genius, okay? So you lefties take that home and write it everywhere, okay? I think that there's fewer of you, so it just takes one or two of you to kind of throw the skews, the numbers, but I don't know why, but they say you're more likely to be a genius. But here's the deal. Throughout history, left-handedness has been seen as a weakness. Just throughout history, it's seen as a weakness, and it kind of ranges from funny to like sad and frustrating. You know, the Latin word for left is sinister, which also means evil, okay? The French word for left is gauche, which means also awkward. Um, The English word comes from the old English word, which means weak, okay? So left-handedness, believe it or not, is going to play into a major important role. We're going to see one of our first Israel's first judges going to be a southpaw, and so maybe you can kind of relate to him today in Ehud. So before we get into that, if you are in chapter 3, I'm going to read verse 1 for you, and it's a little phrase the author uses to kind of set up the stories uh, because God wants us to learn from them. So chapter 3, verse 1 says this, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan, it was in order that the generations of people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. So the question is, 
God made it clear that these Canaanites were to be driven out of the land. But now why did some of them remain? Okay, well, one thing is, if you were here with us last week, and if you weren't, you can go back and listen to it. The first generation of Israelites had not trusted, believed in God enough to drive them out. They kind of played with them, kind of warned them, kind of fought with them, but they remained and they said, okay, we'll just kind of work it out. That's one of the reasons. But the other reason it gives in scripture right here, it says, verse one says, he left these nations to test them. And then verse two says, in order that this new generation might learn to fight wars in God's strength. So he was using this. So if you could imagine just for a moment, you're an Israelite little child and you've just gone to Sunday school on the Sabbath and you kind of ask, you know, the lesson for that day was God talking about how he promised to give Israelites this land. And then you go to your dad and you say, dad, why is it that there's these unbelieving people left in our land when God said he was going to give us that land? And your dad says, well, it's because the sin of our parents. And he says, well, the kid says, that's not fair. Those were their sins. That's not our sins. Why didn't God just kind of send some plagues and wipe them out, right? The answer is to test us, to see if we would believe that to to trust in the Lord as we fight these battles that he is in it with us and to trust in the Lord. So do you ever wonder why God doesn't just cure us of sin and just bring on heaven and where we are going to have no more pain and be living sin free? Well, in part, it's because he wants us to learn to struggle against these things in this world with his strength. That's what he's trying to teach us to do, to rely upon his grace and not just our flesh. The Apostle Paul, he talked about, you know, God leaves trials and weakness in our lives to humble us. Could you imagine if, not, if we just immediately just, sometimes he uses these lesser sins to struggle in our lives for a little while so that we don't struggle with a major sin, maybe like humility, okay? And, and pride that that could be kind of built up in us. And he's saying, you know, that's what I'm doing here. I'm humbling you through it. I want to use these things in your life. And so the story of judge and every judge in part is to know that we are going to fight the fight of faith. And that's what we're going to see here. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to now get into the story of Ehud, okay? And some say Ehud. We're going to say Ehud today. Um, Chapter 3, verse 12 is where we're going to begin. And this is what it says. And again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. So I want you to know, when judges were in order, the land was in peace, when they would, uh, a judge would die, then the land would, uh, the people would defy the Lord and they would be overtaken and overpowered. Eglon was now in control. The king of Moab was now in control. And I want you to know, Eglon, his name just sounds bad. He was a bad dude, okay? He was a bad guy. For 18 years, he pillaged them and he murdered the Israelites. So he was a bad guy. Go to verse 15. It says this, Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. Literally, it says he could not use his right hand, which means in some way he was disabled. We don't know if that hand was crushed or if it was like withered as he was raised. We don't know, but he could not use it. And so I want you to know this society 
that they're living in would have been incredibly cruel to disabled people. That's just the way they were. And so here's a man who couldn't use his right hand, had no strength in his right hand. So that meant that his right hand is useless. He's useless. But Ehud was brave and he was a man of faith. And so he volunteered, I want you to know, to take a payment because they were under the control of the Moab. So they had to take the king of Moab, uh, Eglon, this payment. So he loaded up a wagon full of gold and he packed it with a little surprise here in verse 16. This is what it says. Now Ehud made a double-edged sword about a cubit's long. How long is cubit? Uh, it's about 18 inches, okay? 18 inches, a double-edged sword is what we're talking about. And he strapped it to his right thigh under his clothing, okay? This was a conceal and carry knife. That's what we're talking about here. Verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, who was a very fat man, okay? That seems like a pretty rude, irrelevant detail, but it actually isn't. It's going to play in here, okay? Verse 18, after Ehud had presented the tribute, here's your gold, at the end of the verse he says, your majesty, I have a secret message for you. And he's like, ooh, a secret message. Anyone else, when you were a kid, get excited about the secret decoder ring or the, you know, the marker that you had to write something on your arm and use the light to flash and see what it's going to read? Or maybe it was a snack that he didn't want to share with everyone else. So he's excited, okay? There is a secret he wants to share with him, all right? And the king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. Okay, so here is uh, King Eglon and um, uh, Ehud, and I can't um, imagine, some of you are Star Wars fans, so this is for you. This is just kind of the image I have in my mind, okay? We got Jabba the Hutt and Luke the Skywalker. I mean, it might be, you know, kind of a reference here of what kind of image I have of what's going on, okay? So here we go. Let's get back to Scripture. Verse 20, this is what it says, and the king rose from his seat and Ehud reached with his left hand and drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly. Now, I want you to know, Eglon literally did not see this coming, okay? Remember, Ehud had a withered hand, a withered right hand. So Eglon thought, this guy is no threat to me. There is no worry about this guy. You know, and if he was ever worried about him, you know, if he was strong or had a weapon on him, he would have never left him alone and they would have never left him alone. But he says, this guy is no worry. So he would have never seen this coming. He's a disabled guy, right? Doesn't even have a strong right arm. Verse 22, this is what it says. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged, all right? I use the NIV today. I usually use ESV. If you have ESV, this is a, NIV is being a little polite. It literally says the dung came out, okay? Pretty gross, sorry. That's what it says. That's scripture for you, all right? Even better, it says Ehud did not pull the sword out. The fat closed in over it, okay? Don't want to even imagine that. Then verse 23, then Ehud went out to the porch and he shut the door of the upper room behind him and he locked them, okay? And then verse 24, after he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked and they said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. 
because that's probably what it smelled like, okay? So verse 26, they waited for, waited to the point of embarrassment. So if you can imagine the doors locked and they're like out there cracking jokes, like, you know, does he have his iPad in there? Is he on his phone? What's going on? And so here's what it says. When they did not open the doors of the room, they took the key, they unlocked them, and they saw the Lord fall into the floor dead. Well, now, by now, Ehud had made his way safely away from the palace. He rallies Israel, and they rise up against Moab. And here's what happens in verse 30. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Wow, what a story, okay? So we're going to get some lessons from this. If you have your, bio, your bulletin, you want to write down some notes, I got five lessons that we're going to have see from this spiritual struggle of a left-handed Savior. The first one I want to start with is very, very important. Number one, I want you to see God's Savior would come in weakness. Just for a second here, I'm going to point out the trajectory of where Judges is going and where it began. If you notice, um, it's very unexpected, but the book of Judges opens up with Joshua. Joshua was a mighty general, okay? He was a mighty general. He led a strong Israelite army, and he was exactly what you'd think of of the ultimate warrior leader. And then he was lead, the people of God, and then he died. And then a couple chapters into Judges, we have the first major story of Ehud, a left-handed crippled leader. And he doesn't even fight with an army. At first he goes and he kills Eglon himself, and then he gets the army involved and they overtake them. The next one we're going to look at next week, we got Deborah, and we're going to see that, you know, she's going to shatter some common Israelite conceptions of strength, but Deborah and Barak are going to lead only two of the tribes, not all 12 of, of them, like everyone else have been leading, only two of the tribes into battle. After that, we're going to have Gideon, okay? And Gideon is a timid leader at first, but then God tells him to whittle down his army to only 300 men. And then with 300 men, he takes out the entire army of Mennonites, okay? And then we have Samson who by himself takes a, you know, the jaw of a donkey bone and takes out the whole Philistine army. And then after judges, we will come to David, and you see a scrawny little shepherd boy who writes songs and he defeats a giant all by himself. Did you see kind of the progression and the trajectory? It goes from strength to weakness. From Israel, you know, winning these battles under the direction of a great warrior to now all of a sudden they're under the leadership of a small shepherd boy who will defeat the enemy all by himself. So, Sometimes our Savior, Jesus Christ, is going to come in the most unexpected way, just like Ehud, who was left-handed. He didn't look like he needed power, but he was unexpected. And just like that, we have an unlikely Savior in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus, there was nothing in his appearance that would attract us to him. He was despised and rejected by men. So you would have never, if you looked at Jesus, you would have never said, there's our Savior. You would have said, you know, you wouldn't have said, you know, most likely he was very poor. He was probably not very tall and he was probably not that good looking. He was common in appearance and he achieved the victory all alone like David did on behalf of his people uh, for, for his people. And, and he was crushed by his enemies due to his, not due to his own weakness like Ehud. So I want you to see just like Ehud's victory here, 
It was a complete surprise to Eglon. Jesus' victory is a complete surprise to evil. Real quickly, nobody, evil did not see this coming, okay? The Roman political leaders, Jewish religious leaders, they killed him. And they put him in the grave, in the tomb, and they put the stone in front of him. They thought, we're good. We took care of him. He's done. But Jesus pulls out the dagger of resurrection, and he stabs it right into the power of death in the heart. That's what he does. And Judges tells us that God's going to send salvation in the same way, where a lot of people are not going to expect it. A lot of people might miss it. Because the Jews wanted salvation They wanted a mighty warrior king that would come and alleviate all their oppression. That's what the Jews wanted, okay? The the Greeks, they wanted a philosopher savior that would come and enlighten them and give them wisdom beyond anyone else. But nobody expected a savior who wouldn't even own a home and died a criminal's death. And so, friend, it's very unexpected today. Someone asked a professor, you know, that didn't believe in the Lord Jesus, why don't you believe in Jesus? What would make you believe in Jesus? And he said, if he had ended all suffering. So we think, oh, that's the limitation. It's the suffering. And friends, we go through hardship. And some of you are going through sickness right now. But the thing is, is Jesus came not to to solve all of our little symptoms. He does that by solving the major problem of death itself. And that's what he abolishes. So now that we can say, you know, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory, right? The sting of death is sin. The curse of sin is the law. But Jesus abolished them both. I want you to know, The whole of Scripture, the New Testament, the Old Testament, all points to Jesus, okay? So this, what amazes me about the Scriptures, you can look at all the prophecies. There's 300 prophecies in Scripture that tell specifically what is coming in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it's mind-blowing if you looked at the statistics of all those prophecies. But more than that, God came, uh, saves us through weakness and surprise and substitution, not might and strength and conquest. And so that is something I want us to see is God's Savior would come in weakness. Point number two I want you to say, see is that God saves us now through the weakness of faith. And so to help you get this, I need to help point out to you that I believe all of us are trying to save ourselves, okay? Israel was under the, the rule of Moab, and it was hard, it was difficult. Kind of gives us a picture of every human being. We need to know that we're all looking for salvation, religious people and non-religious people. We just look at it in different ways. Religious people, what do we do? We try to earn it. God, if I just do this, if I stay morally right, if I keep all of your laws, then you will love me. That's how we do it religiously. If we do it, you know, the non-religious way, we we still want to find purpose. We're still looking for meaning. So what do we do? We say, you know, if I'm rich enough, if I, therefore I'll have meaning and fulfillment, so I'm going to work really hard and whatever it takes. If I'm a good enough mother, if I'm a good enough spouse, you know, then I will be set myself apart. And that's what so many of us want to do. There was a uh, kind of a uh, famous person that recently said, you know what, my drive in life comes from the fear of being mediocre. That's what they worry about. That's, they said, that's what is pushing me. I don't want to be mediocre. So we work and we work and we work and we all strive for salvation and freedom from bondage of dissatisfaction and meaninglessness. But God's salvation would come in a different way. 
It's not through religious strength. It's not through your career strength or even beauty. It came as a gift. Okay? Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us that he tried to find salvation both ways. Okay? He said, at first, I tried to find it with peace with God by keeping the law better than everyone else. That's what Paul said. I tried, I worked at it. And then he said, you know what? I tried to keep fulfillment, you know, a different way by having the best and setting myself apart from everyone. He said, I had the best school. I had the best family. I had the best job. And he said, in regards, he says, all of those things I found out were worthless, worthless. And so righteousness, acceptance with God, fulfillment, All of that is found in faith. It's a gift. And all we have to do is receive it in the weakness, not how big we are, not how much we got it together, not how strong our right hand is, but how weak we are and how feeble we are. And it's truly a gift of the Lord Jesus. So that's, uh, I wanted to give you, point number three is this. God mocks those who oppose him. I just want you to see this. Most biblical scholars, they say, miss this because biblical scholars are really studious and stiff and stuffy a little bit, but they miss that this is a humorous story, okay? This story is told like a big joke, and it's not that it wasn't true. It's absolutely true, but they're mocking Eglon in it. They're absolutely, I mean, they would have told this story with laughter, and that's why there's all these bizarre details that he was probably relieving himself, you know? So that's why there's these details. But that, that I see this two messages in this for us. Number one, I want you to see is that first, we should be assured that God will mock those who oppose him. To help you get this, just for a second, I want you to imagine this. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, read this to his church in 1856. And he said this, he said, He who would place himself in front of a fast-moving railway car will be crushed and would be no more foolish than those who are opposing the gospel. If the gospel is true, truth is mighty and it will prevail. Who are you to attempt to stand against it? You will be crushed. But let me tell you, when the railway car comes and runs over you, the wheel will not be raised even an inch by your side. For what are you, a tiny gnat? a creeping worm which that the wheel will crush to less than nothing and not leave you even a name after as having ever been you know an opponent of the gospel let everyone in the world know assuredly that the gospel will win its way whatever they may do poor creatures their efforts to oppose the gospel are not even worthy of our notice and when we need not fear that they can stop the truth They are like a gnat who thinks they can quench the sun. Go ahead, tiny insect. Do it if you can. You'll only burn your wings and die. Likewise, they may be a fly who thinks they can drink the ocean dry. Drink the ocean if you can, O fly. More likely, you will sink in it and drink it, and it will drink you. I don't really think that needs any explanation, but I want you to see those who stand against the Lord, it's going to seem like they have a day where they're on top of the world. They may mock and laugh and they may think that they're in power, but I want you to see God is working in history and he has an agenda and it will be accomplished and his name will be glorified. And those that stand against him are going to seem like this little gnat trying to hold back the train on the train tracks, right? 
You would think, how foolish is that? But I want you to know, if you were on that train and you saw that little gnat on the train track thinking, I can hold you back, what do you feel? We should feel compassion. I got to tell you, when some people come against the work of the Lord and they mock us, I'll just be honest, it sometimes makes me angry. It frustrates me. I want people to know, I'm not a fool. I'm not a dummy. I, I have a mind. I can think about these things. It makes sense. It's real. It does make sense. And I get frustrated. But really, if we see that gnat on the track, we should be like, wait a second. We should be crying out that they would wake up, right? And our anger towards others who oppose the gospel is really sometimes more of a sign of our insecurity in our faith. So we don't have to be angry about it. We should be compassionate about those that don't understand the gospel. The other lesson I want you to see from this humorous way that story is being told is point number four. One day, I want you to hear, we will retell these stories of suffering with laughter and joy. The oppression they were under, under the king of Moab, okay, was hard and real and bitter. But they were now telling the story in the scriptures with laughter. And they look back at this painful chapter, and now they're retelling it with actually a glimpses of joy and little flickers of joy in it. And I want you to know some of you are in a season of pain right now and hardship. And I want you to know it's real. I'm not trying to belittle it in any way. But I want you to know one day, there's going to be a day when you retell these stories without tears. God's resolution to our pain will make this oppression that we're going through right now seem very, very trivial. To help you get this, I love, there's a guy, C.S. Lewis, and this is the imagery he gives us to kind of understand this point. He says, it's like a bad night in a cheap hotel, okay? Have you ever spent the night in a cheap hotel? I have, <laughs> okay? I'm just telling you, my family, we would grow up, and my parents were sweet, and uh, we didn't have a lot, but they would try to take us on a couple vacations throughout the year. We would drive all the way to Florida. Sometimes we'd drive through the night. We would drive as far as we could, and then we would pull over in whatever town we're in, and we'd look for the cheapest hotel, okay? I had three older sisters, okay? And so sometimes we had a dog with us, too. And, you know, there's usually what? In a hotel room, uh, there's two beds. And we, we would stay not in these hotels. We would be in the motels with the door on the outside, right? And so we'd look for those. And sometimes you, we'd, you know, go in. But when there's one bed for the parents, right? And the uh, three sisters, guess what? They got the other bed. So guess what? That left little George, okay? Little George got the floor on these really, really cheap hotels. And I'm just telling you, when you're in a cheap hotel, the last place you want to sleep is on the floor, okay? It just smells bad. There's dirty stuff. It just looks bad. There's stuff all over. But sometimes there's seat cushions. They might put that down there for me. And then if anybody has to get up in the night, they always knock into you on the way to the bathroom. So you barely get any sleep at all. Now, here's the deal. It was kind of annoying, kind of painful. I'm sure I complained about it at the time. But I want you to know one of our favorite things, we get together as a family and dinner meals at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Guess what stories we retell? All those cheap hotels we were in. And I got to tell you, we have so much fun and so much laughter telling all those, you know, woe is me's and the green pools that we swam in, you know, all those different things. We laugh about it, right? And so one day we will laugh about these hardships that we're going through because there will be a day where there will be no more tears. And we look forward to that day. The last point I want you to see real quickly, in God's kingdom, it's about availability more than about your ability. It's about being just available to the Lord. Ehud was a very unlikely candidate to be a hero. 
He didn't even have a strong right hand, yet he was willing to yield himself to be used by the Spirit of God. God's kingdom in the world today doesn't come through our ability, but our availability. One of the best ways Jesus taught this to his disciples, he said, I can do more in a few moments than you can do in a lifetime. John chapter 6 there's 5,000 that are following along. They're all hungry. They've been following them for days. It's time to feed them. Jesus says, let's get them something to eat. And Philip kind of laughs at him. He says, Lord, we could all go work for eight months and not have enough to feed all of them, you know? And so Jesus, what does he do? He takes this little boy's, you know, bowl or this Hebrew happy meal, and he takes this meal and he you know, makes this miracle where everyone is fed. And it's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, you know? And he's, he's trying to teach them this pattern of ministry, not because one day there's 1,000 or 10,000 more people. It's because one day there's going to be millions of people starving for the Gospel. And what they need is not more, you know, the power of some certain people. No, it's what God can do through us as we make ourselves available to him. God advances his kingdom, not through human strength and our might of our right hand. No, it's through our weakness. It's through our left hand, the weakness, and we make those weaknesses available to him. We're just vessels that he wants to use. One more example of this, you can go sometime later today, Acts chapter 8. It's a different Philip, but in Acts chapter 8, there's a story about the gospel was exploding in this village, okay? It was just taking off. Thousands of people were coming to faith. And then all of a sudden, um, an angel says, Philip, I need you to go, and I need you to go this dusty road out here, on the, out here. And he's like, wait a second, you know, all this, you know, all the ministry's exploding. Why would I not stay here? It's just ministry's getting hot. And he says, no, I need you to go out to this road. Well, he goes out to this road, and he does it. He obeys in obedience, and he goes out the road, and there's an Ethiopian eunuch. And he meets him, and he gets on the chariot, and he explains the scriptures to him, and he comes to faith. And, and church founders, Eusebius, would say, the all of Africa has come through the gospel because of Eusebius, uh, this, the, the, uh, the, this man coming to, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch coming to faith. It's unbelievable. Because he made himself available, because he was obedient, and that's what we need to do. And you may think, you know what, I don't have a lot of talent. I just don't have a lot of talent. Well, let me tell you, it's not about what you have. It's about what God can do through you. Make yourself available to him. So have you yielded yourself to the Lord today? Ask God, God, how do you, what is it? How do you want to use me? What ways do you want to use me? What have you been putting on my heart that I've been reluctant to obey? And just do it. Do what he's called you to do. And I want you to know, God works in this world through ordinary people. Just obeying him in ordinary ways. Maybe it's faithfully serving uh, as a mother. Maybe it's faithfully sharing Christ with a friend that you just know and you've been burdened with. Or maybe it's faithfully caring for a neighbor that you just love on, you just continue to love on, you check on them, you know, you pray for them. And maybe it's serving in our kids' ministry, serving in the nursery, whatever it is. You know, it might be filling up somebody's tank of gas because they just don't have enough for that day. God takes the weak acts of obedience and he infuses his power into them. So it's not about what we can do with our right hand of ability, but really our left hand of weakness being yielded to a God and saying, hey God, I'm available. How do you want to use me? So have you discovered the secret of Christianity? That salvation comes not by our strength, 
but by a gift. And you have to be weak enough to receive that gift. And the same is with God's power. It's not through some extraordinary talent, but it's simply by yielding yourself in weakness and faith to the Spirit of God and saying, how do you want to use me? I pray that that we would be obedient to that. Amen? Let's pray, friends. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and even bizarre stories that are told with a little bit of comedy in them, Lord. And uh, Father, help us to understand that, Father, it's not about our strength, our weakness. I mean, it's about our weaknesses, Lord, making ourselves available to you. God, you are strong enough to use us, weak vessels. And Father, we just I pray for those that haven't received you as a gift today, that they would turn their life over to you and submit. And like we talked about last week, belaying and rock climbing and just jumping into the arms of Jesus, that we would trust you fully today and receive you as our Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Use us now. Use us in this kingdom. Use us in this community for the namesake of the gospel and the good news of Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Have a blessed week.